Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm of course your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 129th episode, our guest is Edward J. Watts. Edward J. Watts holds the Alcaviadis Vasiliadis Endowed Chair and is Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego. The author and editor of several prize-winning books, including The Final Pagan Generation, he lives in Carlsbad, California. His new book, Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, was released last month on Basic Books. And now, on to the show. Well, uh, hey, uh, I really have been enjoying your book, first of all. Uh, and I'm about 80 pages in, and I'm, I'm chugging right along. And, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. So, first of all, yeah, good good job. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it, it was fun to write um, to the degree that, like, thinking about horrible things can be fun. But <laughs> Exactly. Well, um, you know, history has always been my favorite subject uh, my whole life. And I think the thing that's been kind of sobering lately, and obviously we'll get to this in your book here, but um, it was always I could think about it abstractly you know i really uh, studied the civil war for example a lot when i was young but I, it didn't seem like so like it didn't seem like it could happen when i was alive but now i don't know there's there's certain things i see uh, in the 1850s that I, I think are analogous to now and obviously in your book uh, there's uh, other things that are similar but um just to start off with uh when did you start thinking about this and getting this project together uh, I mean, it's interesting um, because when I started teaching Roman history, um, and I taught at IU, so I don't know if we Oh, overlapped. what? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I taught there from 2002 to 2012. Wow, uh, that's right. I was 2001 to 2005. Uh, also, one of my best friends, uh, most frequent guest on the podcast, Jonathan Fowler, was a history major. Oh, um, wow. So he- he may have even, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask. That would be funny if <laughs> if you taught one of us or something. <laughs> but uh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when I started teaching um, at IU and, and even before that, when I was doing my graduate work, um, the thing that everyone wanted to talk about was, you know, the U.S. as Rome and talking about the empire and the fall of the empire. Hmm. Um and the Republic really seemed kind of abstract, you know, it didn't seem like it was relevant really to what was going on now and just kind of interesting for the, fa- the fact that it was interesting. And that's totally flipped in the last maybe 10 years. Um, and now, you know, students are super interested in what is the Republic? How does it work? What is it, you know, what is its sort of outcome mean for us and what similarities are there? And um, and the empire now is something that's kind of abstract. You know, the, the questions um, that everybody was sort of talking about in like 2003 and 2004, those aren't the questions they're asking anymore. So um, I noticed with my teaching that, you know, I was moving in ways where I was trying to interact more with what the students, you know, wanted to try to figure out how to process in the world around us. Um, and that meant a lot more sort of republic stuff and a lot more kind of thinking about the similarities between the American Republic and the Roman Republic, um, and then some of the sort of conditions around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just became clear to me, uh, you know, especially as we sort of moved up towards 2016, that this is the kind of thing that needed to be written. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, we really needed to think seriously about what kinds of stuff we were taking for granted and, and levels of sort of political stability that we just assume will always be there. And, you know, we need to step back and recognize that it's up to us to be sure that they're always there. And if we're not doing the necessary um, work, we're not going to get the results we want. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, just one thing that's been sobering with with since you mentioned 2016 since then is just how many things you do take for granted. And you just think, well, this will always be this way and I don't need to worry about that. But it's like. Unless it's, you have it in writing, and even then, <laughs> it's not always a guarantee. Uh, if if it's just a norm, if something somebody always did, and now they've just decided not to, and what are you going to do about it? And okay, well, I hadn't considered that. I just thought everybody's going to do that, you know. So uh, a lot of things are unwritten that get lost, and I think that's important for people to remember. Just because it's not, you know, codified, and we don't do that anymore, it's still like, mm, you know, we lose something. Yeah. So, well, I think the the um, the Garland lack of action, and then the stuff that went on in North Carolina, um, and then especially now Wisconsin and Michigan. Right. You know, that it's just clear that there's a basic kind of thinking that their rules aren't there. Um, we don't need to observe them. Like wh- whatever we can take, we ought to take, and 
Um, as long as we have power to take it, we should. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, this is what the Romans are doing in the worst sort of moments of their republic, where you know they basically say, oh, yeah, there's a there's a convention against doing that, but there's nothing that says we, you know, we legally can't do it. So whatever benefits us, let's let's take that step. And uh, <laughs> sucks to be you if you're on the other side. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, now, you know, as you're a historian writing about this, obviously you know that this has been written frontwards and backwards and there's a million books about this already. But like, how do you decide like how you're going to distinguish yourself in that you know, realm, because that's always seemed like the biggest hurdle to writing about history to me. Yeah, with the Republic, that is a real challenge um, because a lot of the sort of, I mean, the narratives of the Republic never really go away. They they just keep kind of being part of the history of first Rome and then, you know, the Byzantines. And then um, as you move into, say, like Machiavelli, like th- these are all of these are all stories and personalities and events that are continually percolating through every civilization that comes after Rome, mm-hmm. um, at least, you know, in Europe and the Mediterranean. And what we've kind of become more sophisticated in doing is understanding some of the conditions that created, you know, created some of the, the challenges that the Roman state faced. Um, and I think really the, the key difference is uh, a set of changes in the middle part of the second century that we, I think, just in the last maybe 20 years, have become capable of, of really understanding. Um, and part of that has to do with just having better tools. And I think part of that has to do with, uh, you know, understanding kind of what the consequences of certain types of specifically economic developments can really have. Um, and, you know, both both of those things, in essence, kind of have come out of developments in the 21st century. So there's space to really kind of rewrite this narrative because some of the core things in the narrative of the Roman Republic aren't aren't understood correctly. Um, and I think the biggest change is we understand Roman economics a lot better than we did even 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story of the second century has always been uh, one of violence erupting in the 130s uh, because basically of something that if, you know, you look at historiography from the early 20th century, looks a lot like a class struggle. Um, where the lower classes are basically, uh, you know, getting excluded from um, economic opportunities and sort of getting boxed out by the the growth of sort of a plantation type slave economy. And what we actually see is something a little more complicated. Um, It's not that there's sort of this growth of sort of plantation slavery that's pushing people off of their land. Um, instead, it's a lot more like what we're seeing in the Western, in the Western world now. Um, it's a, a sort of growth in economic inequality. So it's not outright poverty and displacement. It's instead a limiting of economic opportunities for people who w- would be basically in the sort of big middle of the economy, um, while a whole lot of money collects around super wealthy individuals. Um, and the cause of this is basically the development of a financial sector in Rome. Yeah, you're just you're going right down my checklist of things because that <laughs> in income inequality thing was like what I wanted to talk about, too, because you see that today. Um, I read uh, it was a Vice article about this guy who was a cook on like a pers- rich person's yacht. And he, all the people that hired him to just sail up and down the coast of France or whatever, just people that you'd never heard of, but they've just, they own the beer rights to all the beer imports in America secretly. And they're just, <laughs> they're just sitting on a boat somewhere. But that's what's happening here in what you're, you're writing about and talking about here is like, it's getting abstract. They've thought of things about like ownership and shares and intangible ways of like, you know, possessing something that they hadn't considered before. And that right there will just create uh, income inequality to begin with. And then it just gets worse and worse because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, you know? Yeah. And the real challenge in a place like Rome is this technology, you know, this technology of finance. It's it's basically brand new. And so certain people understand it and they understand how to take advantage of it and they understand how to get, you know, very wealthy by sort of manipulating um, these tools to just generate large sort of 
amounts of wealth very quickly. And the people who don't understand that, sometimes, you know, the previous generation belonged to the, the wealthiest families in Rome, and now they don't. Um, and so there's tension in the sort of level of the, the rich, um, kind of maybe not dissimilar to what you see like on Nantucket, where you have mm. old money families, and then you have kind of new money families, and the new money families have a lot more money than the old money families. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, there's a tension there. Um, where the people who have a kind of historic status see it being challenged by people who just simply understand the new economic realities better. Mm-hmm. Right, definitely. And, um, you know, I, I just think, uh, jumping to the side a little bit, I just think that living back then would, had to be so different. And you just you, you say little things that, that make me think, wow, that would just never happen today. Um, we're talking about being abstract again. Uh, you know, so, soldiers used to be led into battle by their leaders, right? It was that you were at the front of the charge, you know, and they they died along with their people a lot of the time. That just it never seems to happen anymore. People are like w- removed and they're pushing buttons and behind curtains and, you know, uh, they're making decisions from Washington or wherever. And it's just it's not, you know, no, <laughs> nobody's expecting them to like go out in front of everything like but that back then you had to put your money where your mouth was, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, well, especially, um, you know, there are moments like in the early Republic, for sure, you know, the commander mm-hmm. had to fight alongside. Um, and you know, through a lot of the Republic, that was still the idea. You had mm-hmm. to actually because your, your office that you held um, was a military command. You know, you voted in as a consul. You know, you have a military command. You have to actually go and fight. You can't sit back and, and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really towards the end of the Republic where uh, you have people get these kind of military commands and not actually go out and fight. Uh, and they mainly do it for political reasons. I mean, the, the um, best example of this is Pompey the Great, who was a very successful commander who did fight alongside his soldiers early in his career. Um, but by the end of his career, he's not. You know, he, he delegates the military command out to somebody else and he basically sits just outside of the city of Rome and acts as a political figure. Um, And that, in a way, sets the stage for what emperors will later do. Uh, When you're in the Roman Empire, um, it's almost too much of a risk to have an emperor out, like, leading the charge. Occasionally it happens. um, But it's seen as just sort of crazy when they do that. It's, you know, losing your emperor creates so much trouble that you can't really... Um, you can't justify the risk of putting them out in front of the, the forces and leading them into battle. Um, but in the Republic, you know, obviously you can replace them and it's their job to go out and lead those forces and mm-hmm. be involved and, um, and not really sort of take the precautions that maybe they should have at some times. <laughs> well, that's another thing I was going to uh, talk about is just, you talk about these great battles and, and I just, you know, I close my eyes and I think about what was that like? when 300,000 people die back then, you know, it's brutal. It's just like, that is like, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be, uh, you know, slaughtering people that way. And up close too. this was like, you had to be right up on somebody to kill somebody back then for the most part. Um, but they just, like you said, they just had a lot of kids, you know, they just compensated by, <laughs> they kept them stocked in, in more, more Romans, uh, you know, uh, for the for the battlefield, you know, but like people, uh, but that then uh, later I know became a burden for the people when they couldn't support that many people later on. But um, you know, but that goes back to the uh, income inequality as well. But anyway, so yeah, the the battles, um, it's a really sort of horrific thing to sort of step back and try to envision. Um, mm-hmm. you know, something like. Uh, I mean, if you, if you go to the battlefield where the Battle of Lake Trasimeno happened, um, what that basically consisted of was Hannibal kind of occupying hills above a, like a, a flat plain alongside a lake. And the hills kind of go down around on both sides of these this plain um, so that they almost touch the water. And so when you're in that that plain, you basically don't have a way to get out very easily. You can't run into the water, really very easily with armor and other things. Um, And it's very hard to go to either side. And so when Hannibal sort of comes down on these people, they're, they're sort of sitting ducks, you know, it's it's like at the, uh, 
it's like the battle of the bastards in game of thrones right like they're just surrounded and you just press them in closer and closer and eventually they're tired and they can't move and um they can't really see what's going on because it's foggy and it's brutal and horrible um Mm -hmm. and you know and, and to sort of put yourself in the the experience of or in the mind perhaps of the people who are experiencing that it's you know it's really quite sort of horrifying to think what the last moments of those people would have been like um and yeah it's uh and then you add to the fact that this is being done hand to hand um it's being done usually with swords although there are a lot of sort of um, projectiles and other things being used but when somebody is killed with a sword, um, it's very, it's gruesome. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, more interesting sort of evolutions in, in warfare in the Mediterranean is the move from using spears to using swords. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone who dies with a, you know, in a phalanx battle um, in, in the Greek world, usually they're sort of, it's usually a puncture wound with a spear. Mm-hmm. And that's a body that still looks like a body, but someone who's been killed with a sword, the body is is mutilated, um, especially you know a heavy sword. If it's not stabbed but cut, it's really gruesome. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other thing that's really um, a challenge for us to kind of understand. You know, in in some places there are archaeological digs that. Um, you know, that show the remains of people who were defending a city that was sacked. And mm-hmm. uh, you can see what damage a sword does. You know, there. when I was in graduate school, there was a, uh, um, a dig that was done by Yale University in the 1930s in a city called Dora Europis in Syria. And in the archive, in the sort of storage units associated with that dig, is a, cha- a shoulder covered in chain mail. And the guy had just been cut and cut in half um, Mm. through his armor. And Mm. that's what this would have been like, except not on the scale of one person, but on the scale of tens of thousands of people in a very small space. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, something that traumatizes the survivors of that. But I think probably also traumatizes the perpetrators of that. And when we just read these numbers, we sort of move out of the world where we can understand the experience of the people who had to live through something like that. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's so horrible to think about, but it reminded me of that kinks song, uh, living on a thin line where it's like, uh, all the, all the wars that were won and lost don't seem to matter very much anymore because like you're talking about these, uh, countries that don't even exist anymore. And, you know, people were just like sacrificing their, children for this and it seems so important at the time and i don't know <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's a different show but um, it just seems so like wow just you only got one life and this is what you're just gonna i don't know i, I would be looking for personally a way out of any kind of military service but you didn't have a choice back then right you had to everybody had to it was all it was conscription full conscription for what was the ages that they took people well, it depends on the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the the moment that is really kind of the most remarkable is the full mob. I mean, the Republic rarely fully mobilized. Um, the one time that they really do this is in the war with Hannibal. Uh, and I think the thing there um, that maybe helps answer that question of, of why is uh, basically Romans were in- incredibly afraid that if they lost that war, they would lose their freedom. They would become basically the slaves of Carthage or the slaves of other cities in Italy. Um, And that's a very powerful motivating factor. Um, And the entire sort of Roman citizen population got on board with that. And I think the mobilization was something around, we we estimate like 70% of people between say like 18 and and their mid thirties. 70% of the men in the Roman citizen population were mobilized to fight Hannibal. Uh, and there weren't riots <laughs> that we know of. There weren't sort of draft rebellions, you know, none of the things that you would associate with um, that level of mobilization. And at a time when the economy has been disrupted because um, trade has been sort of you know, stopped by the fact that Hannibal is in central Italy and can block sort of approaches to Rome. Um, 
and the Romans are, are able to do this. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something that's quite remarkable, that you have basically everyone who is in the sort of age cohort we would imagine to be age cohort that would serve in the military, more or less is serving in the military during that time. Um, they felt very strongly about it. And I think that's the one of the great achievements of the Roman Republic in that era is it was able to create that great enthusiasm for Roman success and for you know the defense of, of what people saw was their state. Sure. And if everybody has to go, then everybody has a reason to want to see it succeed. You know, you're more invested if you're sending your, your children out to this thing, you know, and everyone's doing it. If it's like, if it's when it's some people like it is now, it's like uh, the poor person's draft, as I've heard described what goes on now. It's like, you, if you want to go to college or you want to like, you know, uh, this is an easy way to do that, you know, but like back in like World War Two times, or, you know, uh, my grandparents times, it was, you know, it was, it was World War Two and it was time to go, guys. <laughs> so, um, it's a little bit different uh, if, if everybody goes, but um, yeah, well, gosh, we've talked about a lot of the stuff. I already, we, we, we really got naturally got to the things I was going to talk about but um realm more in generally um let's think about like you know an empire that big because obviously they weren't the only ones in history that had a large empire they were one of the first and, and probably the biggest right still um uh, empire that ever was uh, there was the british empire of course uh you could say america is is somewhat of still of an empire after world war ii i guess um i don't know uh what do you think is that sustainable to have that large i mean should we should, are we asking too much that that should always be the way it is? I mean, it seems like such a because I student taught in England and they had roads that we drove on that were from the Romans, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, that was all the way in England, like, and you know, they were everywhere. They were in Africa. They were in all over the place. So it's just like, can any empire sustain? I guess is my question. So I think the thing with the the Roman Empire um, that's pretty remarkable, if it were if it were intact at its greatest extent right now, it would be the third largest country in the world. Mm. Um, at its greatest extent, it had a quarter of the world's population. Um, and you know, you look at the the geographical extent of it. You have you know from basically the border of Scotland to sort of the northern part of Saudi Arabia, um, and like from Sudan to Romania. Um, from Morocco to basically Kuwait, um, it's it's massive. But I think what's important to kind of keep in mind about the Roman Empire is it doesn't always hold that sort of massive amount of territory. But the core of the Roman Empire, which basically ran from, say, what's now like northern Iraq, eastern Syria to the Atlantic, um, and from basically like the the sort of northern parts of Belgium and, and Britain down to, you know, Saudi Arabia and Sudan, um, that was held together and that did hold together for almost 400 years. Mm. And that um, there's a process that the Roman Empire sort of engages in that transforms it from something that looks a whole lot like the British Empire um, in, say, the first century to something that looks a whole lot more like the United States by the... Um, by the end of it, by the end of the fourth century. Um, and so when you're in the first century, this is basically a colonial enterprise um, run by Italians for the benefit of Italians. And they extract as much as they can from everywhere that's not Italy, more or less, uh, to sort of enrich and, and encourage the sort of prosperity and, and economic health of Italy. Um, by the fourth century, Everyone in this empire is a citizen. Emperors are coming from anywhere. You know, I mean, there are emperors from Syria. Um, there's emperors from North Africa. There's dark-skinned emperors. There's, um, you know, bunches and bunches of non-Italian emperors from all over the place. And the empire includes, you know, everybody. Uh, and everybody is a citizen. And everybody is, you know, everybody is um, engaged in this enterprise. Now, there are groups outside of that. I mean, slaves, of course, are, are a significant part of what this this empire is for as long as this empire is there. Um, mm -hmm. But what Rome really shows is it is possible to be an imperial power and have things stay together for a really long time if the empire is able to progressively incorporate more and more of those people 
that start out as subjects, if they end up as citizens, they also feel like they're Roman. Um, and it's it's remarkable that the Roman Empire, of course, starts in the city of Rome in Italy. When it ends, it ends with the fall of Constantinople, where everyone is speaking Greek. Mm. And you're, you know, a thousand miles from where it started. Um, that's the success of the Roman state, that it it's able to start as one thing, and it incorporates so many people, and it's so kind of um, adaptable, that it doesn't just collapse when, you know, it loses a battle, or even when it loses Italy, um, because everybody feels like they're Rome, and the Roman state lives wherever these Romans live, and they live under their own laws and under their own control. And what that means is what starts out as an Italian empire um, ends almost 2,000 years later as a Greek empire in Constantinople, but it's the same state. Hmm. Well, yeah, and going back to incorporating other cultures, uh, it's interesting what you say about the deities and the cults and the gods and they just they just take other people's stuff right all the time it's always taking taking people's uh you know higher beans <laughs> it's like there's ours now they're called something else guess what <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing uh what were some of the major like religions i know they went to christianity in what year uh well christianity is a it's a slow process so right. you know right jesus is crucified around 30 a.d uh-huh. Um, the conversion of the Emperor Constantine is around 313, 312. Um, and Christianity at the time of Constantine's conversion is maybe 20% of the population, mm. maybe 10%. Mm. It's hard to say. Um, it's not a majority anywhere. Um, but by the end of the fourth century, it's a majority in much of the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm. Um, and then by the end of the fifth century, it's a majority across the Mediterranean. Um, right. But, you know, that's that's almost 500 years after Jesus. Uh, So it's a really long process. Um, But that process is helped a lot by the fact that there are all of these ties that bind together all of these people across the Mediterranean. And those ties remain there for a really long time. Um, And so what someone is doing in Jerusalem in the year 30, um, 500 years later, this is something that you know, you're still part of a cultural world that spread those ideas. Um, and that, I think, is the, that's why you end up with Christianity across this entire space, um, in large part because there's the ability for people to travel freely and to spread ideas freely. Mm-hmm. And right, when you talk about the Roman Empire, it's like wherever they live, that's where the empire is. It's, you know, they they take it with them. There's a set rules that they live by. Um, and it's, it's wherever they go. Um, I think a testament to that is the, uh, infrastructure that is still standing that you have pictures of in the book. Um, I mean, you, you have to build it pretty well to have it be like 2000 years later and it's still just there. Um, that's pretty amazing. Like some of the like uh, bridges and, uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing, but that's like, you know, all to use a cliche all roads lead to rome and you know they you know they brought with them their infrastructure and their ability to you know extend themselves uh because they had a code that they lived by i guess so yeah it's really interesting when you hear about and you you read about um some of the times when you can trace that infrastructure being built um there's a a letter collection that involves basically a set of back and forth exchanges from a guy who's governing what's now part of Turkey and the Emperor Trajan. Um, and in those letters, you see the governor sort of say, well, we, we need to build, you know, this project. Um, there's no local engineer who can do this. Can you send somebody for us from the military to do this? You know, sort of the Army Corps of Engineers of, of the, <laughs> the second century A.D. Um <laughs> And that's just how it was done. There's a sort of bank of expertise uh, and they know how to do, you know, they know how to do these projects because they're doing them everywhere and people move around and um, they bring with them the the basic knowledge of this is how you build a bridge or this is how you build an aqueduct or um, this is how you build a bathhouse. And those engineers are, you know, there's not a ton of them, um, but the empire makes it possible for them to move where there's a need for their services. Um, but the other thing that's really intriguing is there's also this great culture of kind of scientific and especially architectural exploration. 
where the Romans are continually trying to do new things and make make construction more efficient and, and make sort of construction more um, aesthetically appealing. Uh, so like building with concrete is something that the Romans really figure out how to do. Uh, and so a lot of the the structures that you see, like the Pantheon or Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, I mean, these come out of technological advances that happen in the Roman period that largely grow out of experimentation with different materials. Um, but once that experimentation sort of proves to be useful and successful, the thing that has been discovered can spread across the empire pretty easily because there is this bank of, of expertise um, that the empire more or less sort of can send where needed um, anywhere across the territory it controls and sometimes even beyond the territory it controls. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, just as a side thing, and I, I wanted to discuss this with you. Uh, what do you think of when people say about America, it's a republic, it's a republic, not a democracy, don't you know? What do you think about that when people say that? Uh, I mean, I think that that's, that's definitely true. Um, but America, what, what, does that, what does that mean, though? Uh, well, basically, what a republic is set up to do is to find representatives who are chosen by the people to, you know, to, to speak on their behalf and to vote on their behalf and to make decisions on their behalf. Um, a democracy in at least the ancient sense, was basically something where nobody made decisions um, unless there was not time. You know, like if you're a general fighting a battle, you make a decision. But if you're making a policy decision, it goes before the entire citizen body and the entire citizen body votes on it. And whatever the majority decides is what happens. And so it's a very direct kind of decision making where a majority just basically decides what the policy is. And in a republic, the the voters elect people who represent their interests and those people make decisions on behalf of the voters. And if the voters don't like it, they don't really have easy recourse until the next time those people come up for election. Um, and the thing with a republic, you know, because it's representative, different republics make different decisions about how you decide to weight the votes of individual people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I live in California uh, and my vote matters for president. My vote matters less than someone who lives in Wyoming. Um, we made that decision. You know, that's how we decided our republic ought to work. Um, that's not, it's not completely not democratic, but it is a representative system and certain people's voices matter more, um, because of that. And in Rome, the, you know, the decision wasn't totally dissimilar. Um, there was much more sort of weighting of voices of people based on the amount of money they had than in the United States. But there was also geographic weighting as well. Um, and so in some of the elections, the voters were distributed across um, voting blocks, you know, voting tribes, basically. Um, the vast majority of voters in the city of Rome belonged to four tribes. And then there's 31 other tribes that represent rural areas. Most of those voters who come into the city are wealthy. And so you you have something not totally different from people in Wyoming having more of a voice for president than people in California. Uh, And that's, in essence, what a republic is designed to do. Um, There's a notion of kind of representative representative decision-making by people chosen by the population. And um, also the rules that settle or the rules that determine how those people are chosen, they aren't equally applied to every citizen. Um, Different citizens have more of a voice than others. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those things are true of the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, and it used to be more true because uh, the Senate was not even directly elected, right? It was just appointed back in the day. I don't remember when that changed, but... Um, but that's kind of the way that it works back in Rome too. I mean, talk about the, we haven't even talked about like really the political infrastructure of the time. So like how much of a voice do people have, uh, in what goes on and and who gets appointed and you know, what, what's the balance there? Um, so people would vote on every office holder 
um, with the exception of, of one emergency office where this person would just be sort of entrusted with power for six months and would be expected to give it up. Um, but voters basically chose everybody else. Uh, once you held a certain level of office, you were qualified to join the Senate. And so basically voters choose the Senate as well, but not directly. You're not electing somebody to the Senate, but you're electing somebody to an office that will qualify them to be in the Senate. Um, the magistrates who are elected by voters, no magistrate is a single magistrate. They're all paired and they all have basically the ability. Yeah, I remember reading that. That was so weird to me. I was thinking, wow, two people in the same <laughs> job. What a weird thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the idea there is, again, this kind of representative idea where um, if there's two people who can basically block each other from taking actions, you encourage them to, to compromise so that the opinion of people more broadly is represented in whatever decision they're making. Um, and so the idea is all people who, who perform a role in the Roman state, um, they must do it in a way that is you know based on consensus and based on sort of broad, um, broadly accepted ideas and broadly accepted approaches, mm. and it, it in a sense maintains the integrity of the system because then one person can't kind of go crazy and do something that no one really supports. Um, it generally works pretty well um, until it doesn't, of course. But for, <laughs> I was going to say, would you would you advocate for bringing this back? Do you think there should be two cabinet members positions in the <laughs> in the White House and maybe two presidents or something? Like well, I think in the, uh, that would be interesting if that happened. <laughs> I think the founding fathers talked about that. You know, really? Do you have like a you know do you have a single person who's in charge or do you have basically a group? I think they talked about a group of three. Three. But, um, huh. You know. If you have a single person in charge, you can have somebody who basically does what they want. And the real risk is that they can do things that are either illegal and basically dare everyone else to stop them, or they can do things that aren't broadly popular and um, nothing can really stop them from doing that. And the paired magistrate could, you know, you, you could say, yeah, this isn't, this isn't acceptable. And you have as much power as that other person, at least in theory. Um, would it, it would be useful in, and it, it was useful in preventing people from, you know, doing things that were really just crazy and detrimental to the state. Hmm. Um, but what it also does is it makes it this so that the state can't actually respond to things very quickly or efficiently. Like if there is a, something that is controversial, paired magistrates make it really hard for you to get that idea. Um, enacted because there's you know anything that's controversial there's significant opposition to it and you might not be able to find a compromise and if you can't find a compromise you're kind of stuck mm -hmm. right D didn't the first like i don't remember if like maybe the first few presidents whoever lost was the vice president wasn't that the way it was yeah when did they stop doing that? Because that would be interesting if, if Hillary Clinton had to be Donald Trump's vice president. <laughs> I remember when they stopped doing that. Sometime in the 1970s. They did do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, um, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. what else did you want to say about the uh, political infrastructure? I, stopped, I, just, I just thought that was a fascinating idea, two people the same job. But <laughs> what else was there? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the important thing is the basic idea. Uh, uh, like, the basic idea of the Republic was this idea that if you're a Roman citizen, um, the state serves your interests and you serve its interests to the degree that it's, it, you know, it's necessary, needed, and, and possible for you to serve its interests. And what that meant was that you, you in essence, were like serving everybody when you were a magistrate. And that meant that you understood this principle of, of compromise and consensus building. And all of these sort of, all of these procedures and all of these kind of pairings of magistrates and all of these um, political infrastructures that were built by the Romans to sort of make the Republic run um, worked off of this idea that individual um individuals must cooperate and the state must run on consensus and it's much better to do nothing than to do something that isn't broadly supported um and for most of the republic that was the basic idea you know you 
you worked together with your colleagues to find something that was broadly supportive, had broad support, um, and addressed whatever needs needed to be addressed in the Roman state. And if you found that, then you would move forward. And if you couldn't find that, it was better to do nothing and let a problem just kind of sit there until you did actually find a solution that was broadly supported. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, let's just get to it. What What do you think is the similarities you see today? And why did Rome fall into tyranny? And what lessons can we draw for right now? How 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 bad is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what we're what we're looking at right now is the beginning stages of a process that in Rome led to the end of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and it's been going on in the United States for probably almost a generation. I think if you you look back to some of the stuff Newt Gingrich was doing in the mid '90s, you start mm. seeing things that look like what Romans were doing, where um, you're not looking to find solutions by compromising with the other side. Um, mm. What you're looking to do is sort of weaponize disagreement, um, churn up kind of volatility, and um, you know, and and basically kind of tensions in society that allow you to sort of generate a base of support by opposing somebody else um, and taking kind of extra, well, either extra normal or um, extra legal uh, actions that benefit your side in a very narrow way, but undermine the ideas of, of how the republic is supposed to work. And I think in the United States, we're seeing all of these things. You know, we're, we're seeing this idea of um, creating disagreement as a way to build support for your base in a very cynical way. Um, we're seeing this kind of encouragement of doing whatever you have the capacity to do to block the um, momentum initiatives and voice of the other side from being heard. And all of that undercuts this idea that Republic is supposed to generate consensus and it's supposed to encourage compromise. And all of these things like the filibuster and, and like these sort of procedural actions and um, like these ideas of, of conference committees, um, all of these things exist because the founding fathers and the people who came after them thought that the United States worked best when it had institutions that generated compromise um, solutions to problems. And what we're sort of doing right now is, is living in a world where people are basically misusing those tools, not to promote compromise, but just simply to block the other side or ignoring them uh, and doing things that are really just in sort of the narrow self-interest of a segment of society um, while ignoring the interests and ideas of people coming from the other side. And the the real danger there is um, you promote division and also you're not solving problems. And in Rome, um, it wasn't the promotion of division that caused the outbreak of sort of real frustration and ultimately political violence and ultimately, of course, civil war. It was instead that the, the state wasn't able to address the needs of its citizens uh, in a way that they felt was, was acceptable and fair because people were basically misusing the political system. Um, and so compromises couldn't be found that people broadly supported that addressed the economic problems that Romans were experiencing, um, that addressed the economic inequality that Romans were sensing. Uh, and ultimately, this, this sort of brought Rome down the path of political violence. Um, we're not there yet, but I think we need to step back and say, you know, as citizens, what can we do to punish the people who are pushing us down this path where we're not finding compromises and we're not building consensus? Um, what can we do to be sure that those people are voted out immediately? Um, and what can we do to be sure that people aren't saying, yeah, well, that's good for me. Um, and so I, I support it. But if the other side did it, I would you know, be really upset. That should be something that immediately sets off alarm bells um, because that is something that is anti-Republican in you know, the conceptual sense, not the political party. Mm-hmm. Small R, not big R. Right. Republican. Um, yeah. Uh, well, here's where I get caught up, though. Okay, the Republicans. I mean, you mentioned Merrick Garland before. Yeah. Um, that was unconscionable. I can't believe they got away with that, first of all. Um, and Mitch McConnell has done more by himself with that one thing 
and plenty of other things. But that one thing right there like to subvert democracy and America's future forever because that was illegitimate. There's no reason why Barack Obama should not have gotten that Supreme Court pick. Like, and not just because I want that side to win, just because it has never happened before that you're making up rules that don't exist. And you're, you know, I, I often compare it to Calvin Ball, if you ever read Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, the, you never play it the same way twice and there's no rules. You know, you just make up the rules as you go along. Um, yeah. Whatever you say goes. And that's what the Republicans are playing right now. And, you know, this last, you know, election 2018 blue wave, not so much in Indiana here, but in other <laughs> states uh, told there was a blue wave. Um, anyhow, uh, you know, notwithstanding that, um, the Republicans have have everything. They have all the levers of power now and they don't they don't follow the rules. It was I saw a really great tweet once where it was like Mitch McConnell or uh, Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell play chess uh, uh, or uh, Monopoly. And, and uh, Chuck Schumer's reading, reading the rule book. And uh, then, <laughs> you know, they describe some horrible thing that Mitch McConnell does and he flips the table over and, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, and then Chuck Schumer's like, I, so one of us gets to be the thimble, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, they're not playing by the rules. They don't care. We're studying the rule book over here and we're losing. Um, but I see what you're saying. You break down the, you know, you, one side goes lower. Hey, you know, we split up California into 10 states and or five states and we get 10 senators now. Ha ha. What do you think about that? Then they'll be like, OK, what about Texas? <laughs> and then they'll just they'll just go lower than that. They'll just they'll just race to the bottom. So I see what you're saying. Well, what's the answer then? Uh, um, if, yeah, you know, how I do, think that <laughs> I think that that's the real that's the real challenge that we all face. Right. Um, I mean, in the Roman Republic, there's a moment when they kind of step back and realize this is really bad. Things are going really badly. Um, and it's in the mid 60s where um, there's a, a near rebellion that's basically led by a bunch of people who in the last civil war had become very rich by stealing the property of people who were on the wrong side of the war. And then they, they sort of, after 20 years, had blown most of the money and were now in debt and they wanted another war so they could steal more property. And um, the Romans stop this. Um, it doesn't actually, I mean, there is, there is some fighting, but it doesn't actually become a major threat. Uh, but all Romans are kind of shocked by this. And in sort of November and December of the year 63, um, Cicero stands up and basically makes these speeches and then says, okay, moving forward, what we need to do is remember how unified we are now um, and keep that going. Three weeks later, there are people standing up in the Senate denouncing Cicero. You know, the unity didn't even last a month. Um, and that's where you get if you're not sort of policing this kind of stuff immediately. Um, I, I think that it's really hard for people on the left to, you know, to, to take a principled stand and say, yeah, just because it was done to us doesn't mean we should do it back. Um, but I think if, if that's not what happens we just run the risk of this becoming an even more vicious cycle with even more sort of dangerous things happening. Um, I think the fact that you have sort of threats and intimidation now coming out on the right and sometimes even outright political violence, that's really scary because that's the sort of path to civil war. Uh, and what I think needs to happen is voters everywhere need to vote out people like Mitch McConnell. Um, and understand that doing that is it's not about being pro-Republican or pro-Democrat. It's about being mm. pro-American mm -hmm. and saying that this kind of conduct is ultimately going to result in some very, very horrible things happening in this country. Maybe not in two years, maybe not in 20 years. But there but what the what a republic basically does is it sets the rules for political conflict so that you know kind of what's at stake if you win and you know what's at stake if you lose and never is your life at stake in either con in either you know outcome um and so political conflict becomes something that's not violent it's instead something that is channeled through representatives who supposedly are sort of able to step back and think about how to take the demands and the ideas of their voters and make something that everybody can agree with or more or less can agree with um, and that's why you elect representatives, you know, because in a democracy, one vote in the majority carries it. And it doesn't matter how controversial it is. In a republic, all of that is kind of channeled through representatives 
who can sort of distill the passion out and create something that actually solves a problem. And what we're kind of doing is corrupting that process. Um, and so if, if we want it to stop, I think we have to, we have to all resist the, ch the tendency or the challenge or the, the sort of temptation of kind of, oh, well, they did this to us. Let's do it back to them. And instead say, look, like we need to defend our system because our system generally works pretty well for America. We're a big place. It's a very diverse place. Um, the climate is diverse. The people are diverse. Economic life is diverse. And you need a system that basically can come up with some um, mechanism so that everybody feels like their views are represented and every policy reflects kind of the the ideas, at least, of people from all across this, this really kind of crazy and different place. Um, if we don't do that, there's a real sort of danger that, that the country will not stay together. Um, and I don't think anybody wants that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to live in Northern California in uh, Ukiah, and uh -huh. I couldn't even believe that I was in the same state sometimes as Southern California. <laughs> so <laughs> I, even within that one state, you know, it's just, you know, I don't, you don't feel that connected all that much to that. Um, but my brother uh, lives in California now too. But anyway, um, but yeah, so you don't think President Oprah in 2020 should add five more seats to the Supreme Court then? You think that's a bad <laughs> idea? <laughs> uh, I think that the Supreme Court is a real, it's a real problem what you do about this. Um, because there's a lot of people in the country who feel like the majority in the Supreme Court is not legitimate. And that's the kind of, that's the poison that, that the Merrick Garland situation has yeah. really kind of injected into the bloodstream. And I'm really, um, I'm not sure that there's a fair way to address that. I think that one of the interesting proposals is this idea of expanding the court and then also sort of term limiting the justices. Mm -hmm. So that you kind of reach a balance and then every president um, for each presidential term will will appoint two new justices. Um, so two people will age off and then you appoint two new people. And that might be a way forward because you take some of the, you know, you, you get someone like. Um, like. Uh, I don't know. Gorsuch, who's in his early 50s on the court. And he's there potentially for 40 years. Um, if he's there instead for 15 years and then someone new will be appointed, I think there's a lot of good for that. You know, there's a lot of good that can come out of that sort of process. And that might be the way that you, you sort of get this, you suck this sort of poison out of the ideas and the, the um, confirmation process of Supreme Court justices. But it's a real problem. Um, the Supreme Court, I think, is a real problem, and it is one that's not easily solved um, if you are going to try to stick to the rules, um, mm -hmm. because the rules have been very, de very deeply corrupted. Yeah, well, and we haven't even talked about Kavanaugh, really, but my goodness, like just, you know, you take away even the like horribleness of the of the crime being alleged. Well, let's talk about his like vindictive sniveling attitude and saying you're well, you'll what did he say? You'll reap the whirlwind or whatever you like Batman villain esque thing he said when he was like crying on the stand or whatever, like that's the guy that's going to judge people like really that should be disqualifying right there. You can't be in part. You're not impartial. You just said you're not impartial. You said you're going to get revenge on people <laughs> from your confirmation hearing like and that right there shouldn't happen, you know, but like we're, we're down the rabbit hole now. Thank you, Mitch McConnell, for like doing this. And, you know, I, representative of of who exactly on the Supreme Court, you know, Merrick Garland or not Merrick Garland, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh went to that same uh, school. They were alumni of that same institution. Uh, uh, there's like how many Roman Catholics on the like, like there was like Scalia and, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas and, you know, the, the, I, you know the, like how many Catholic, like Catholics are a large part of America, but they're like, I think they're over, I could be wrong about that. I'm, I may be, <laughs> I may be overstepping on the saying that, but you know what I mean? There's, there's imbalances. There's not, you know, there wasn't a woman on the court until however long ago, you know, there's not, you know, 
you can go down the list. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know how you remedy that. It's it's really upsetting to me. But um, yeah, who wants to be the one to appoint the first uh, term limited Supreme Court justice, though? Everyone wants to to do the lifetime one. Everyone on the left is like Roy RGB, you know, but she's, you know. Uh, it's a lot to ask of somebody that age to keep going that long. I mean, it's like your body's, you know, it's tired, I'm sure. But, you know, yeah. you need to get somebody younger in there. Gorsuch is, like you said, he's a young man. He's going to hang along on, on a long time. Uh, so will Kavanaugh, presumably. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know how you fix that. But I don't know. I, I, I'm, I realized I'm very good at, like, being militant and, like, wanting to just, like, do, do I want to do what the Republicans do, but I'm not good at, like, convincing other people that, I, that I'm right or building consensus. So I may not I may be the wrong person to ask about how to tactically uh, fix things, but I just want, I'm almost like, they do this to us. We should do this to them. It's not fair. They should only get away with this. Why does, should they only, why, why do we have to be the ones that have all the standards and they have no standards? That's what gets me. And yeah, I and I think make people have standards. That's the really hard thing about this moment. Um, you know, th- there's there's definitely a sense that if you're trying to defend the standards of a republic at a time when other people aren't, um, you know, a, a republic is designed to be a kind of middle middle ground. Like it's it's designed to be a place where people from different different points of view come together and hash out a kind of compromise. And if nobody wants to compromise, um, a republic kind of becomes hollow. And I think the, the real sort of, the really difficult thing is um, if there's a perception that some people aren't playing fair, it's really hard to compromise with them. Um, and it's really hard to even sort of suggest compromise. And I think that's the difficult moment that we're, we're at right now. Um, but yeah, I think what Rome shows is the the path away from that. It can take a long time if a republic is successful for it to really kind of blow up. But it will blow up if people are not sort of understanding what it's supposed to do and protecting it when it's actually trying to work as intended. Um, then there aren't rules governing what political behavior is, and there aren't rules governing what happens if you win or lose. Um, and that's a real danger. You know, if, if you lose an election and it's going to result in you going to jail or you being killed, you're not going to conduct the election in the same way as if it just means you, you know, you go on a hike the next day in the woods. Like, um, that I think is, is what we need to preserve is just the, the sort of basic rules of the game. Uh, because if you don't understand, if you don't know for sure what's going to happen to you if you lose a political conflict, then you're not going to be willing to lose. And that's dangerous. <laughs> mm-hmm. People who are scared and people who aren't sure uh, don't tend to make very good decisions. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Well, uh, hey, on that cheery note, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you <laughs> want people to know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think what I would say is that the one thing that um, I found like with my students is they think that the, the fall of a republic is a bad thing, but using the Roman example, the empire just follows it. And in some ways, the empire actually is quite successful, right? I mean, Augustus takes over in 30 BC. The last emperor actually dies in 1453. So it's a state that lasts for almost 1500 years. So they say, well, okay, yeah, I mean, losing the republic was bad, but the empire was pretty successful. But that actually wasn't the most, that, the empire was not the most likely outcome of the end of the Republic. Um, Rome actually had um, tremendous good fortune in that when its Republic fell, there was an extremely capable person who ended up taking power and um, was capable of basically shifting from being a sort of brutal, sort of vicious uh, participant in a civil war to more or less an effective governor who wasn't sort of brutal and vicious in that same way. Um, That doesn't usually happen. And actually in all of the civil wars of the first century BC, none of the winners actually ever controlled all of Roman territory. Um, There was always part of Rome, what was theoretically Roman territory, that was in rebellion against Julius Caesar or against Sulla or against Marius. Um, it's only Augustus who's able to actually control all of the territory as an autocrat. So the fall of a republic doesn't naturally lead to just an emperor taking over. 
um, it is more likely in something as big as the Roman Empire or the United States to lead to the place falling apart. And I, and I think that's the danger that we don't really appreciate. You know, we look at the fall of the Roman Republic and we say, yeah, they lost their freedom and that's bad. Um, but it actually, in the end, could have been even worse. And I think that when we are sort of thinking about what kinds of, um, what kinds of things we're playing with politically in the United States, we don't really appreciate like, what the actual danger is if these systems fail. Um, it, could be, it could be a sort of breakup of the United States and all of the sort of attendant horrors that go along with that. Um, I think none of us want that, regardless of where we are politically. Hey, uh, it's been a really great talk. And uh, one thing I always ask before we go is what music have you been listening to lately? Um, mainly the Pixies. <laughs> oh, cool. Excellent. Yeah, yeah I Trump love the Lamont. Pixies. Nice. Yeah, I've seen some good uh, concerts on YouTube. They have archives there. Um, I think there's like a Brixton Academy one or something. But yeah, I love the Pixies. That's I great. saw them in Indianapolis in 2005. Oh, and they were, nice. they're incredible. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're incredible. Right. I even like uh, Kelly Deal. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Kelly Deal 6000. She had a band uh, side project, even from the Breeders, of course. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the Pixies. I don't read a lot of like history anymore. I, I'm kind of like consumed with the now, and and this was a nice. It was a nice break from that because I got to think about like, wow, what lessons can we take from what we've already seen as opposed to like acting like this is the first time we've seen it. So yeah, I and I think that's, that. that's an important thing for all of us to do is to sort of think about like conceptually what could happen. Um, mm -hmm. It helps us, you know, it helps us think about how we ought to respond and um, just opening our minds to sort of a, a bigger set of possibilities. So mm -hmm. yeah, when history, that's, that's how history I think is best serving us all is, <laughs> Just giving us a better sense of what could be. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Well, uh, thanks so much again, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. And uh, yeah, uh, I appreciate it. Oh, for sure. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Definitely. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Thanks.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.